Blog Talk Radio. Rifleman Radio Show on Appleseed Radio. The Rifleman Radio Show is brought to you by the Appleseed Project, which is the sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to bringing you the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. And while we're doing that, we're going to talk to you about what it means to be an American, what the founders envisioned for our country, and uh, a bit of history about the beginning of our nation, which began on April 19, 1775. Now, many nations can track their beginning, their birth date, to an exact uh, date and hour, but we can. And we're going to talk to you about that date. If you come to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event, <clears throat> it's a two-day course, uh, and the Appleseed Project is an all-volunteer, nationwide, grassroots, not-for-profit organization, and uh, and we're going to teach you everything you need to know to become a rifleman in those two days. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to uh, master the skills and techniques, but uh, you're going to be given all the skills and techniques that you'll need to become a rifleman, including uh, sling use, 
building a stable shooting position, determining your natural point of aim, shifting it onto the target, executing the shot by the stick steps and inches, minutes, and clicks, and how they pertain to your rifle. Not only that, but during the course of the weekend, you'll be given a rock-solid foundation in rifle safety. And uh, this is uh, a part of the program that we don't talk about a lot, but I think it's very important because you're going to get two days of rifle safety. And uh, that two days of rifle safety is kind of like a uh, like the, the what the boot camp is to the military. You know, the military has you go through a boot camp, and uh, usually it's about two months. And they uh, they give you enough foundation that uh, you're good to go for uh, the rest of your career. <clears throat> That's the same thing we're going to give you uh, at an Appleseed weekend. As far as rifle safety goes, we're going to give you a solid foundation in rifle safety, what a safe rifle is, what uh, the criteria for a safe rifle is, uh, <clears throat> uh, how to handle a rifle safely, etc., and uh, and that will go a long way towards uh, towards carrying you through the rest of your uh, your firearms shooting uh, path. <clears throat> All right, now uh, I know I told folks, or I posted it on the forum that uh, that we weren't going to have a show tonight because. I'm a little bit under the weather, and I wasn't. A, I was uh, a bit worried that I wasn't going to be able to do the show. But I've only missed, uh, I think, two shows in almost three years, and I didn't want to add a third one unless it was uh, absolutely necessary. So I'm going to drive on through the show tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about. Uh, I'll be reading you some letters from the Revolutionary War period, written by uh, folks from both sides, uh, so that it will give you a little bit more of a perspective on the events uh, that were occurring at that time. But before we get started, let's talk about how you can get to uh, an Appleseed weekend. Now, everywhere uh, across the United States, every weekend we're having events all across the United States. So any weekend that you want to decide to go to one, there's going to be a, a, an Appleseed two-day rifle marksmanship clinic within reasonable driving distance of you. So so how do you find out where it is? Well, I'll tell you right now. You can go to rwva.org. That's our homepage, rwva.org. Once you're on the home page, you'll see a list of tabs across the top of the page underneath that brown banner. The second one from the left says Appleseed. If you put your cursor on that, you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. That will take you to a page that has a map of the United States on it. If you put your cursor on the state where you wish to attend an event and click on it, it will open up another window and uh, give you the the events that are occurring in that state. If you want to see what's going on across the United States, there's a hot link embedded in the text above the map. And you can click on that, and that will take you to this page that I'm going to read from now. The events are listed uh, by
by dates and then by the cities, alphabetically by the cities. And uh, once you have determined a location that you would like to uh, attend an event at, there's uh, two other hot links there for you, just to the right of that. One says information. This link will take you to the event information page, the EIP for the event, and that will give you the uh, directions. It will let you know who's hosting the event, uh, contact information, and then uh, other bits of uh, information uh, might possibly be included also, such as uh, hotels, restaurants, etc. So that will give you the information for that specific event on that specific date. Now, right under that is another link that says register. This is so that you can pre-register for the event. Now, back in the early days, you could just show up at an event and uh, you'd get on the line, you'd shoot. We'd make it happen somehow, but we're growing larger and larger. And I can't always guarantee that uh that you're going to, there's going to be space for you at an event if you don't pre-register. We have events that sell out uh, on quite a regular basis now, and if you don't pre-register and you show up at one of these events uh, and it's sold out, then you're not going to be able to shoot. <clears throat> so don't do that to yourself. Make sure that once you've decided to attend an event, click on register. That will take you to the third-party our third-party registration software, which is Eventbrite. And that will allow you to register for the event. Uh, it will also allow you to purchase a membership in the RWVA and uh, and go ahead and get pre-registered. That makes sure that you have a place on the line when you show up to shoot that weekend. And it also makes sure that we can look at the number of folks that are coming and by looking at the number of folks, we can determine how many instructors we're going to need to schedule for that event, how much uh, equipment, supplies, and stuff we'll need to bring, etc. So it, it helps both of us out. Uh, I'll tell you that in the past we have secured additional lines for the uh, for events. found out that uh, uh, that an event was sold out, but uh, there's no way we're going to be able to do that if we don't know that you're coming. All right, so make sure you pre-register if you uh, if you can. That will also help you out on the uh, the prices for the uh, the weekend. If you pre-register for an event, it is seventy dollars for the two days. That includes all the materials and a T-shirt. Uh, if you don't pre-register, if you just walk on and you do get a place, it'll be eighty bucks. And uh, women are ten dollars, kids are five dollars, and uh, there are several free categories: active duty, guard, and reserve. Uh, may attend Appleseed events free of charge. We want to make sure that we're giving back uh, to the country and. Uh, the military, of course, does a lot for us, and we want to do what we can for them. So we're going to have them attend at no charge. The same for the law enforcement officers. We'd like to make sure that uh, the military and the law enforcement 
who actually have jobs that deal with firearms <clears throat> can attend these events uh, at no charge. All right. <clears throat> One last thing that I want to tell you about is the Rifleman's Opportunity Card. That's a new program that was started, and what the Rifleman's Opportunity Card does is if you come to a an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Weekend and uh, you work through the weekend and you shoot, and by the end of the weekend uh, you have not shot to Rifleman standards, that's uh, shooting a 210 or above on the AQT, the Army Qualification Test, <clears throat> then we want you to be able to come back to a uh, an Appleseed event without having to pay again and again. All right, so if you are determined to get your rifleman's uh, patch, and once again, that's the patch that we award. It says rifleman right across the top of it on top of 13 stars and 13 bars, and it uh, tells the whole world that you have shot to four minutes of arc, that uh, you have shot a 210 or above on the Army Qualification Test, and that you are what we consider to be able to shoot a rifleman's score. Now, there's more to being a rifleman. I'll talk to you about that later. But you will get a patch if you shoot 210 or above on the uh, on the AQT. And if you're determined to do that, then what you'll need to do is to purchase an RWVA membership, and they're 20 bucks, and then take the uh, RWVA uh, membership, uh, receipt, along with the receipt for the apple seed the, that you, the paid apple seed that you attended, take it to the shoot boss, and uh, he'll affix a card, a, a sticker to the back of your card that uh, will then make it a rifleman's opportunity card. And what you'll do then is, uh, whenever you're ready to attend your next event, you'll go ahead and you'll register uh, under the military category, and then you'll just be prepared to show your rifleman's opportunity card when you get to registration. Uh, if you're a law enforcement officer or a, an active duty guard reserve member, <clears throat> then uh, when you register, it'll be free, but you'll need to be prepared to show your IDs when you get here uh, at the registration. So that is the rifleman's opportunity card. That's the pricing. And uh, let me give you a, a quick rundown on the upcoming events. We have this coming weekend, which is May 14th and 15th, and it begins in Albuquerque, New Mexico, followed by Annapolis, Maryland, Augusta, Georgia, Burlington Flats, New York, Carlsbad, New Mexico, Colfax, Wisconsin, Corpus Christi, Texas, Hinckley, Minnesota, Moscow, Idaho, Mayaca City, Florida, Osage Beach, Missouri, Pyro, California, Proctor, Vermont, Red Bluff, California, San Angelo, Texas, Smithville, Texas, Wells, Minnesota, Bakersfield, California starts off the weekend of the 21st and 22nd, followed by Bellevue, Michigan, Blackfoot, Idaho, Brighton, Colorado, May 21st and 22nd is a ladies-only shoot. Uh, if you're a lady and you would like to shoot with other ladies and you're in Colorado, or you can get to Colorado, May 21st and 22nd is the event for you. Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, May 
Wisconsin is Saturday, May 21st. That's a one-day event. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, May 21st and 22nd, as is Corona, California. Davila, Texas, East Providence, Rhode Island, Saturday, May 21st. Enfield, New Hampshire, May 21st, 22nd, as is Hernando County, Florida. Hudson Falls, New York, Las Vegas, Nevada, Layden, Massachusetts. Mannheim, Pennsylvania, New Bremen, New York. Ossian, Indiana. Tequa, Ohio, Raton, New Mexico, Redwood Falls, Minnesota, Sacramento, California, Worland, Wisconsin, Harvard, Massachusetts, says that it is Sunday, May 28th. Let me make sure that's right. I mean, Sunday, May 22nd. It just has the 22nd listed for that I don't know if that's a one-day or if it's a discrepancy in the uh, the schedule. So if one of you guys will take a look at that and see if one of the, the, the Harvard, I mean the Massachusetts folks, make sure that that's correct. <clears throat> That'll end the uh, May 21st, 22nd weekend and start up the May 28th and 29th weekend, which begins in Boaz, Kentucky, followed by Bowling Green, Missouri, Okay, hold on. I'm trying to scroll through this fast, and sometimes it kind of uh, I get lost here. Followed by Calverton, New York, Castle Rock, Washington, Chaplin, Connecticut, one day, Saturday, May 28th. Chillicothe, Illinois, May 28th and 29th, as is Dallas, Fort Worth, at the Quail Creek Range on May 28th and 29th. This is a ladies-only event, and... Uh, I spoke to you guys last week about this, and I'll speak to you again about it, and that is that uh, here in Texas we're working with the Diva Wow, which is the Women Outdoors Worldwide organization. And it's a great group of ladies, and they are uh, interested in uh, helping women explore the uh, the outdoors and uh, and sports and we're working with them to put on ladies-only events, and this is going to be a ladies-only apple seed. If you would like to put on a ladies-only event and partner with the Diva Wow Women Outdoors Worldwide Organization, then uh, <clears throat> if you'll contact uh, the Diva group, uh, Judy Rhodes uh, at uh, Diva Wow and let her know that you would like to do this. I'm sure that she would be more than happy to help you guys sponsor an event. And uh, these events always sell out. So uh, it certainly would be nice if you had uh, one or even two events a year that you were guaranteed to sell out. And one of the best ways to do that is by getting uh, other organizations involved in helping you to do this, helping you to promote it, helping to push to its members. It doesn't have to be Diva. It doesn't have to be women's only. It can be any organization. But if you will partner with an organization and multiply your powers to promote the event and uh, to get folks to, to folks to the event, then you're going to be way ahead of the of the game. And, and one of the ways that we're doing that here is by partnering with uh, Diva and, uh, and getting them to help us promote the event to their members and... <clears throat> Uh, 
like I said, you can get together with any organization uh, within reason. I mean, you know what our uh, policies are on on organizations. Uh, we don't want to partner with Al Qaeda or anything like that. So, uh, but if you'll partner together with uh, with an organization like Diva or with the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution. Sons of the American Revolution, your state rifle association, then you're going to be way ahead of the game with promotion and stuff like that. If you if you are just uh, three people in that location, and you want to, you need a force multiplier, then by all means get get together with another organization, get together with your state organization. Uh, those folks usually have uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of members, and uh, you can instantly force multiply with them. Okay, and I'm going to keep telling you about this every time uh, every time I hit well, one of the ladies only or one of the diva events here in Texas because uh, because it's important. Uh, that's the way we're going to grow the organization is through making alliances with others, with uh, multiplying our forces, through with having other organizations help us promote and by participating uh, in the events along with us. All right, that same weekend, the 28th, and 29th, uh, actually this goes, uh, this is a three-day event in Eleanor, West Virginia. That's May 28th, 29th, and 30th. It's a three-day event. Eureka, Kansas is the 28th and 29th, as is Evansville, Indiana. Fredericksburg, Texas, Gardnerville, Nevada. Gibsonburg, Ohio, Glen Helen, California, Grand Island, Nebraska. Gunnison, Colorado, Kingman, Arizona. Lewiston, Idaho, Manchester, Tennessee, Messina, New York, Menominee, Wisconsin, Montrose, Iowa, Mayaka City, Florida, New Philadelphia, Ohio, Rama, Colorado, Ramsur, North Carolina is a three-day event also. That's May 28th, 29th, and 30th. And I'm sure if you go to uh, the Ramsur range, that's the home range, and we we uh, like for everyone in the organization at some point to make a, a pilgrimage to the home range there in Ramsar. I'm sure if you go that weekend, May 28th, 29th, and 30th, being that it's three days, <coughs> Ramsar has a uh, an actual distance range with pop-ups, and I'm sure that they will uh, at some point pull the pop-ups out, and you'll be able to shoot uh, pop-ups at the actual distance if you go that weekend. That same weekend, 28th and 29th, <coughs> is also Riley, Indiana, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, Troop, New York, and I told you, Troop is is one of those great hole-in-the-wall, uh, just a, a beautiful little range. And and Troop, New York in May is going to be very uh, very nice weather. It's going to look very beautiful, and uh, you'll have a great time there. That same weekend, 28th and 29th, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Van Etten, New York, shows May 28th and 28th. It doesn't say it's a one-day, so... That might be a typo also, so you want to check on that uh, before you make any plans. Colebrook, Connecticut does say one day. It says May 29th. That is the Sunday, so that's going to be a one-day event on Sunday. Rama, Colorado says May 30th, which is a Monday. That's a one-day event on Monday, May 30th. That takes us to the first weekend in June, which is the 4th and 5th. That begins in Amarillo, Texas followed by Atlanta, Indiana, Bloomington, Illinois, Castleton, North Dakota, Clinton, Illinois, College Station, Texas, 
Fresno, California, Gainesville, Florida, Hartford, Connecticut, Houghton Lake, Michigan, Lake Jackson, Texas. This is another ladies-only event that we're partnering with Diva with, and this is uh, right outside of Houston, and uh, it's June 4th and 5th. So if you are a, uh, a lady and you would like to shoot with a lot of other ladies, and listen, uh, if you've been to a ladies-only shoot, you probably know that the dynamics of the shoot uh, uh, are a bit changed. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's always very interesting. There's always something going on, and uh, a lot of the ladies have a great sense of humor, and uh, and it it seems like it's always a a very a very fun, very interesting shoot. And uh, we encourage you to participate in this. That uh, same weekend, the 4th and 5th, Lewiston, Pennsylvania, Miamisburg, Ohio, Pine Bluffs, Wyoming, Rainbow, California, Sherburn, Louisiana, uh, is going to be closed. It's still on the schedule there, but as far as I know, uh, until we get other word, uh, I talked to Steve McPeak, who is uh, the uh, boots on the ground there in Louisiana, and he said because of the uh, the core opening up, uh, they're going to have to open up flood, flood gates there, that that range was probably going to be under 10 to 20 foot of water. And it did not know how long uh, it would be underwater and then how long it would take to get it back into a, uh, in a condition where you can shoot there. So uh, while we're talking about this, I want to make sure that... Uh, that everyone remembers them in your prayers. Uh, these things go on uh, at different times all around the nation. Right now, the folks along the Mississippi are experiencing this, and you wonder why I sometimes, uh, why lately, I've been encouraging folks uh, to to think more about preparation for uh, for hard times. And that's because I, I certainly am not saying that I'm any kind of prophet. I can see anything coming because I can't. I'm just telling you that that is the way of the world. Things happen. Things are going to happen. Rivers are going to rise. Uh, forests are going to burn. The earth is going to quake. It's going to snow and ice. Electricity is going to be interrupted. That's just uh, that's how the world functions, and it behooves you to be thinking about this so that when an occasion like this occurs, that you're not uh, that you're not sitting there wailing and uh, and doing the woe is me or standing on top of your house with a save me sign around your neck that you're doing what you can to prepare when times are good <clears throat> so that you can get through those times that are tough. And you can get through it in such a fashion that you can provide leadership and aid to your fellow human beings, to your family, to your neighbors and your community. You don't want to just squeak by. You want to be in a good enough position <clears throat> that you can be in a position uh to help, and I don't mean necessarily that you have to feed anybody. I'm just saying that you need to 
be prepared enough that your head isn't uh, spinning around and you can think about the things that you need to do to help your fellow citizens. All right. That same weekend, June 4th and 5th, shocked in Wisconsin, Dakota, Georgia, Washburn, Missouri, Waterman, Illinois, Weir, New Hampshire. And that, uh, that takes us a full month ahead. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I just downloaded uh, the Firefox 4 and... Uh, And apparently, uh, either some of the add-ons are not working, or something is still uh, some kind of a glitch still because uh, I'm not able to see the chat. <clears throat> However, I'm sure that uh, if you guys, uh, if you have any questions uh, about anything I've just spoken about, or if you'd like to make any comments, any suggestions uh, about the show, about the program, or uh, if you'd like to add any information as we go along tonight, you're welcome to do so. You can do that by uh, calling in at 347-308-8790. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to... I'm going to read you some letters. This is... Uh, this is from a book called The Spirit of 76. And this is uh, edited, edited by Henry Steele Commager and Richard Morris. And it's uh, published by Castle Books. And what it is, is, uh, is it's about uh, 1,300 pages of, <clears throat> of letters. And... Uh, they have collected the letters and researched and collected the letters and uh, put them together so that uh, the story of the uh, of the American Revolutionary War is is told by the authors of these letters from from both sides of the conflict, men and women on both sides of the conflict, and uh, it lets you uh, it lets you see a different perspective on it. Now, remember when I'm going through this, that <clears throat> the uh, uh, and for one thing, the English is going to be uh, it's written, uh, they've kept the the letters true to the style they're written in. So, and I'll read it just like they wrote it. And, uh, and also that uh, that what I'm reading is a letter from one person to another person or one person to a committee or, or, or whatever. <clears throat> this is not a uh, the historical facts all the time, uh, the the way that you would get from a historical novel, right? Because it's not uh, – the stuff that I'll be reading isn't researched uh, and then you're you're given the true and accurate facts. This is what the letter writer – either their opinion or what they heard, or and in some cases it is the facts. Uh, and they're relaying them to another person. But it's not always the facts. It could also, it could just be something that somebody heard or what they think, etc. So, <clears throat> as I'm reading through this, uh, keep that in mind. 
right, we'll start off. Uh, as I said, the the this uh, this book covers uh, the the full body of the war, but we're not going to uh, we're not going to start off. We're not going to go really in that much of an order. But what I did want to do, to give you uh, is some of the stuff that. Uh, that pertains to uh, like to the the three strikes of the match story that uh, we talked about. All right, and, uh, and we'll start off with uh, uh, the letter from the uh, the king from King George to Lord North, and this was uh, written on November eighteenth, seventeen seventy four, and the king says. I'm not sorry that the line of conduct seems now chalked out, which the enclosed dispatches thoroughly justify. The New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. Now remember, this is November 18, 1774. And this is his, his famous letter where he says, Blows must decide where well, he comes right out and says we're gonna, this is it, the only way we're, we're going to decide this issue is not through any type of uh, uh, mediation we're going to fight <clears throat> all right now uh, the next letter I'm going to read you is from February 10th 1775, and this is from the House of Commons in the Earl of Sandwich. Uh, the noble, the, and this is the, the Earl of Sandwich is speaking, and uh, these are notes that were taken. The noble lord mentions the impracticability of conquering America. I cannot think the noble lord can be serious on this matter. Suppose the colonies do abound in men. What does that signify? They are raw, Undisciplined, cowardly men. I wish instead of forty or fifty thousand of these brave fellows, they would produce in the field at least two hundred thousand. The more the better. The easier would be the conquest. If they did not run away, they would starve themselves into compliance with our measures. Are these the men to fright us from the post of honor? Believe me, my lords. The very sound of a cannon would carry them off as fast as their feet could carry them. This is too trifling a part of the argument to detain your lordships any longer. And uh, those were notes uh, from the House of Commons, February 10, 1775. Uh, Now, uh, a letter from uh, Major Pitcairn, Major John Pitcairn, uh, to the Earl of Sandwich, and uh, this is posted from Boston on the 14th of February, 1775. My Lord, I have taken the liberty to write twice to your Lordship before this. Since I came here, one letter I sent by Colonel Prescott, the other by the packet from New York. I think many of the people of this country begin to think they have gone too far. The behavior of the New York people will have a very good effect. 
The general thinks he sees it already, and all the friends to government are of opinion that vigorous measures at present would soon put an end to this rebellion. The deluded people are made believe that they are invincible. A very impudent publication lately come out asserts that they are an overmatch for all Europe in their own country. When this army is ordered to act against against them, they will soon be convinced that they are very insignificant when opposed to regular troops. I have sent your lordship enclosed with this the newspaper with the late resolves of the Provincial Congress. Impudent enough they are. I often march out with our battalion six or seven miles into the country. The people swear at us sometimes, but that does us no harm. I often wish to have orders to march to Cambridge and seize those impudent rascals that have the assurance to make such resolves. They sometimes do not know what to think of us, for we march into the town where they are all assembled, but we have no orders to do what I wish to do and what I think may easily be done. I mean to seize them all and send them to England. I have sent your lordship some of the publications of this country. There is one I am sorry I can't get. It is called, What Do You Think of the Congress Now? If I can get it before the ship sails, I shall certainly send it. Now, this is a letter from, uh, once again, from uh, Major John Pitcairn to the Earl of Sandwich, and he sent this one. Uh, looks like almost three weeks later, on the 4th of March, he's posted it out of Boston, the 4th of March, 1775. And it reads, Orders are anxiously expected from England to chastise those very bad people. The general had some of the great Whigs, as they are called here, with him two days ago when he took that opportunity of telling them and swore to it by the living God that if there was a single man of the king's troops killed in any of their towns, he would burn it to the ground. What fools you are, said he, to pretend to resist the power of Great Britain. She maintained last war 300,000 men and will do the same now rather than suffer the ungrateful people of this country to continue in their rebellion. This government of the general gives great satisfaction to the friends of government. I'm satisfied that one act of campaign, a smart action, and burning two or three of their towns will set everything to rights. Nothing now, I'm afraid, but this will ever convince these foolish, bad people that England is in earnest. What a sad misfortune it was to this country. The repealing the Stamp Act, every friend of government here asserts in the strongest terms that this had been the cause of all their misfortunes. All right. Uh that is some of the the accounts leading in to the events of uh April 19th <clears throat> now in February <clears throat> uh, a group of troops were sent uh to seize the cannons in Salem <clears throat> and uh, 
And word, of course, reached ahead of the troops, and they were able to uh, they were able to find a way to outsmart the British regulars and uh, and turn them back. Now, Gage never expressed himself contemptuously toward the Americans, but he did, in the end, adopt a contemptuous view. Uh, he quotes, uh, they will be lions whilst we are lambs, but if we take the resolute part, they will undoubtedly prove very meek. And uh, as the F2 reinforced this theory, on February 26th, he ordered Colonel Leslie to Salem to see some stores and some cannons which the Patriots had collected to there. Now, the Salem expedition... It's quite possibly it, it could have been the opening battle of the war, but it it, it actually turned out to be uh, a comic opera. Early on in the morning of the 26th, uh, Colonel Leslie sailed with 240 men for Marblehead. Now, after he got there, he, he uh, got the folks off the boat, he disembarked, and then he marched on the ancient town of Salem, only to be denied passage over the drawbridge by the unterrified townspeople. And uh, the following event is told in the account of Mrs. Story and William Gavitt. All right. <clears throat> this is uh, two of the folks who were there, the witnesses. And uh, this is, uh, as I said, the account of, the, uh, of Colonel Leslie's expedition to Salem on uh, February 26th to see the cannons and stores there. <clears throat> On Sunday, the 26th of February, 1775, my father came home from church rather than soonish than usual, which attracted my notice, and said to my mother, the regulars are come and are marching as fast as they can towards the Northfields Bridge. And looking towards her with a very solemn face, remarked, I don't know what will be the consequence, but something very serious, and I wish you to keep the children home. I looked out of the window just at this time and saw the troops passing the house. My father then stepped out and stood at the foot of the yard looking into the street, while there our minister, Mr. Bernard, came along and took my father by the arm, and they walked down towards the bridge beside the troops. My father was very intimate with Mr. Bernard, but was not a deacon of his church. Colonel David Mason had received tidings of the approach of the British troops and ran into the North Church, which was contiguous to his dwelling, during service in that afternoon and cried out at the top of his voice, The regulars are coming after the guns and are now near Mallon's Mill. One David Boyce, a Quaker who lived near the church, was instantly out with his team to assist in carrying the guns out of the reach of the troops. And they were conveyed to the neighborhood of what was then called Buffum's Hill, to the northwest of the road leading to Danvers. My father looked in between the platoons to see if he could recognize any of the soldiers who had been stationed at Fort William on the neck, many of whom were known to him, but he could discover no familiar face. He was blackguarded by the soldiers for his inquisitiveness, who asked him, with oaths, what he was looking after. The northern leaf of the draw was hoisted when the troops approached the bridge, which prevented them from going any further. Their commander, 
Colonel Leslie then remarked to Captain John Felch, or in his hearing, that he should be obliged to fire upon the people of the northern side of the bridge if they did not lower their relief. Captain Felt told him if the troops did fire, they would all be dead men, or words to that effect. It was understood afterwards that if the troops fired upon the people, Felt intended to grapple with Colonel Leslie and jump into the river, for he said, I would willingly be drowned myself to be the death of one Englishman. The people soon began scuttling two gondolas which lay on the western side of the bridge, and the troops also got into them to prevent it. One Joseph Witcher, the foreman in Colonel Sprague's distillery, was at work scuttling the colonel's gondola, and the soldiers ordered him to desist and threatened to stab him with their bayonets if he did not. Whereupon he opened his breast and dared them to strike. They pricked his breast so as to draw blood, and he bled. It was a very cold day, and the soldiers were without any overcoats, and shivered excessively, and shewed signs of being cold. Many of the inhabitants climbed upon the leaf of the draw, and blackguarded the troops. Among them was a man who cried out as loud as possible, Soldiers, red jackets, lobster coats, cowards, damnation to your government. The inhabitants rebuked him for it, and requested nothing should be done to irritate the troops. Colonel Leslie now spoke with Mr. Bernard, who probably observing by his canonical dress that he was a clergyman, and said, I will get over this bridge before I return to Boston, if I stay here till next autumn. Mr. Bernard replied, he prayed to heaven there might be no collision or words of a similar import, then the colonel remarked he should burst into the stores of William West and even Becker Bickford and make barracks of them for his troops until he could obtain a passage. And turning to Captain Felt said, By God, I will not be defeated. To which Captain Felt replied, You must acknowledge you have already been baffled. In the course of the debate between Colonel Leslie and the inhabitants, the colonel remarked that he was upon the king's highway and would not be prevented passing over the bridge. Old Mr. James Barr, an Englishman, and a man of much nerve, then replied to him, It is not the King's Highway. It is a road built by the owners of the lots on the other side, and no king, country, or town has anything to do with it. The colonel replied, There may be two words to that. And Mr. Barr rejoined, Egad, I think that will be the best way for you to conclude the king has nothing to do with it. Then the colonel asked Captain Felt if he had any authority to order the leaf of the draw to be lowered. And Captain Felt replied, There was no authority in the case, but there might be some influence. Colonel Leslie then promised if they would allow him to pass over the bridge, he would march but 50 rods and return immediately without troubling or disturbing anything. Captain Felt was at first unwilling to allow the troops to pass over on any terms, but at length he consented and requested to have the leaf lowered. In this, he was joined by Mr. Bernard and Colonel Pickering, and the leaf was lowered down. The troops then passed over, 
and marched the distance agreed upon without violating their pledge, then wheeled and marched back again. and continue their march through North Street in the direction of Marblehead. A nurse named Sarah Tarrant, in one of the houses near the termination of their route in Northfields, placed herself at the open window and called out to them, Go home and tell your master he sent you on a fool's errand and broken the peace of our Sabbath. What? said she. Do you think we were born in the woods to be frightened by owls? One of the soldiers pointed his musket at her, and she exclaimed, Fire if you have the courage, but I doubt it. All right, so you see the... It could very easily have occurred that day, February 26th, in Salem. Uh, Because if you've read anything about this, you'll know that... uh, as the regulars were marching, there was also militia troops were uh, sent from the surrounding cities as they heard that the the uh, stores at Salem were being threatened, and hundreds and hundreds of men under arms were rushing to Salem, just as they would uh, a month later <clears throat> at uh, Lexington and Concord. They were rushing uh, to defend the town of Salem. <clears throat> Instead, the uh, uh, as we said at the beginning, you know, it turned into com- almost a comical thing. The uh, they they raised the drawbridge, and the troops couldn't cross. Now. Obviously, if they would have been uh, very hardcore about it, yes, they could have shot the men on the other side, uh, uh, sent somebody across, and and lured it. But if they would, if they did, that would have started a war. So they agreed only to uh, to march 50 paces beyond the bridge, turn around, and come back. And they didn't find anything because the stores were uh, were about a hundred, uh, oh, about 150 yards further from the point where they turned around. So this also had the effect of uh, of training. Uh, the way when I look at it, I see it as a way that the that the folks were trained to resist. Uh these events occurred several times and uh, and I believe it had the effect of training the colonist to resist. <clears throat> now, you can also see that the that the people did not have a uh, a great fear of the regulars. They actually held them in contempt. <clears throat> uh, when the one woman said, uh, "Fire if you have the courage," but I doubt it. Then. Uh, uh, Obviously, she didn't think that they would fire. She was expressing her contempt for the soldiers. And you have the two groups. You have the colonists and the British regular troops who each were beginning to, uh, uh, not just to disagree, but to uh, uh, to begin to have a, a loathing 
of each other. <clears throat> All right. Let's go from there to the uh, the events that occurred on April 19th. <clears throat> now, we know that... Uh, we know from reading the history <clears throat> that General Gage sent uh, Colonel Francis Smith out on an expedition, and his orders were to go to Concord and to seize uh, any of the materials for uh, warfare there, any uh, powder, any any materials that could be conceivably used in uh, in resistance by a possible future rebel force. Now. Some historians uh, will say that there was a twofold uh, purpose that the because General Gage had been uh, he had been ordered to arrest uh, certain members of the of the Congress, especially Hancock and Adams. But Gage did not uh, he did not tell his he did not give the orders to arrest any uh, any of the folks involved because. He was quite aware. He knew that in a situation like this, that that uh, it's like a hydra. You, if you chop off one or two heads, you really haven't done anything except add uh, to the uh, add fuel to the fire. However, his troops still uh, they still decided that if they could, they would arrest uh, Hancock and Adams if they saw them. All right. Uh, so this is an account, and we believe it is by Lieutenant John Barker of the King's Own. And it reads this. And uh, the title of his uh, account is, From Beginning to End, Ill-Planned and Ill-Executed. April 19th, 1775. Last night between 10 and 11 o'clock, all the grenadiers and light infantry of the army, making about 600 men under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Smith of the 10th and Major Pitcairn of the Marines, embarked and were landed upon the opposite shore of Cambridge Marsh. Few but the commanding officers knew what the expedition we were going on. After getting over the marsh, where we were wet up to our knees, we were halted in a dirty road and stood there till 2 o'clock in the morning, waiting for provisions to be brought from the boats and to be divided, and which most of the men threw away, having carried some provisions with them already. At 2 o'clock we began our march by wading through a very long ford up to our middles. After going a few miles, we took three or four people who were going off to give intelligence. About five miles on this side of a town called Lexington, which lay in our road, we heard there were some hundreds of people collected together intending to oppose us and stop our going on. At five o'clock we arrived there and saw a number of people, I believe between two and three hundred, formed in a common in the middle of the town. We still continued advancing, keeping prepared and against an attack, though without intending to attack them. But upon our coming near them, they fired one or two shots, upon which our men, without any orders, rushed in upon them, fired, and put them to flight. 
several of them were killed. We could not tell how many because they were got behind walls and into woods. We had a man of the 10th Light Infantry wounded, nobody else hurt. We then formed on the common, but with some difficulty, the men were so wild they could not hear orders. We waited a considerable time there, and at length proceeded on our way to Concord, which we then learnt was our destination, in order to destroy a magazine of stores collected there. We met with no interruption till within a mile or two of the town, where the country people had occupied a hill which commanded the road. The light infantry were ordered away to the right and ascended the height in one line, upon which the Yankees quitted it without firing, which they did likewise for one or two more successively. They then crossed the river beyond the town, and we marched into the town after taking possession of a hill with a liberty pole on it and a flag flying, which was cut down. The Yankees had their hill, but left it to us. We expected they would have made a stand there, but they did not choose it. While the Grenadiers remained in the town, destroying three pieces of cannon, several gun carriages, and about 100 bales of flour with harness and other things, the light companies were detached beyond the river to examine some houses for more stores. One of these companies was left at the bridge, another on a hill a quarter of a mile from that. The other three went forward two or three miles to seek for some cannon which had been there but had been taken away that morning. During this time, the people were gathering together in great numbers and taking advantage of our scattered disposition, seemed as if they were going to cut off the communication with the bridge upon which the two companies joined and went to the bridge to support that company. The three companies drew up in the road, the far side of the bridge, and the rebels on the hill above, covered by a wall. In that situation, they remained a long time, very near an hour. The three companies, expecting to be attacked by the rebels, were about 1,000 strong. Captain Lorry, who commanded these three companies, sent to Colonel Smith, begging he would send more troops to his assistance and informing him of his situation. The colonel ordered two or three companies, but put himself at their head, by which means stopped them from being time enough. For being a very fat, heavy man, he would not have reached the bridge in half an hour, though it was not half a mile to it. In the meantime, the rebels marched into the road and were coming down upon us when Captain Laurie made his men retire to this side of the bridge, which, by the by, he ought to have done at first, and then he would not have had time to he would have had time to make a good disposition, but at this time he had not, for the rebels were were got so near him that his people were obliged to form the best way they could. As soon as they were over the bridge, the three companies got one behind the other, so that only the front one could fire. The rebels, when they got near the bridge, halted and fronted, filling the road from the top to the bottom. The fire soon began from a dropping shot on our side when they and the front company fired almost at the same instant, there being nobody to support the front company, the others not firing. The whole were forced to quit the bridge and return toward Concord. Some of the grenadiers met them in the road and then advanced to meet the rebels who had got this side of the bridge 
and on a good height. But seeing this maneuver, they thought proper to retire again over the bridge. The whole then went into Concord, drew up in the town, and waited for the three companies that were gone on, which arrived in about an hour. Four officers of eight who were at the bridge were wounded. Three men killed, one sergeant, and several men wounded. After getting as good conveniences for the wounded as we could, and having done the business we were sent upon, we sent out upon our return. Before the whole had quitted the town, we were fired <clears throat> on from houses and behind trees, and before we had gone a half mile, we were fired on from all sides, but mostly from the, we the rear, where people had hid themselves in houses till we had passed and then fired. The country was an amazing strong one, full of hills, woods, stone walls, etc., which the rebels did not fail to take advantage of, for they were all lined with people who kept an incessant fire upon us, as we did too upon them, but not with the same advantage, for they were so concealed there was hardly any seeing them. In this way we marched between nine and ten miles, their numbers increasing from all parts, while ours was reduced by deaths, wounds, and fatigue. And we were totally surrounded with such an incessant fire it is impossible to conceive. Our ammunition was likewise near expended. In this critical situation, we perceived the 1st Brigade coming to our assistance. It consisted of the 4th, the 23rd, and 47th Regiments, and the Battalion of Marines with two field pieces. They were six-pounders. We had been flattered ever since the morning with expectations of the Brigade coming out, but at this time had given up all hopes of it as it was so late. I since heard it was owing to a mistake of the orders, or the brigade would have been with us two hours sooner. As soon as the rebels saw this reinforcement and tasted the field pieces, they retired, and we formed on a rising ground and rested ourselves a little while, which was extremely necessary for our men, who were almost exhausted with fatigue. In about half an hour, we marched again, and some of the brigade, taking the flanking parties, we marched pretty quiet for about two hours, for about two miles, rather. Then they began to pepper us again from the same sort of places, but at rather a greater distance. We were now obliged to force almost every house in the road, for the rebels had taken possession of them and galled us exceedingly. But they suffered for their temerity, for all that were found in the houses were put to death. When we got to Monotomy, there was a very heavy fire. After that, we took the shortcut into Charlestown Road. Very lucky for us, too, for the rebels, thinking we should endeavor to return by Cambridge, had broken down the bridge and had a great number of men to line the road and to receive us there. However, we threw them and went into Charlestown with any great interruption. We got there between 7 and 8 o'clock at night, took position above the hill above the town, and waited for the boats to carry us, which came sometime after. The rebels did not choose to follow us to the hill, as they must have fought us on open ground, and that they did not like. The pickets of the army were sent over to Charlestown, and 200 of the 64th kept that ground, and they threw up a work to secure themselves. And we embarked 
and got home very late in the night. That was uh, from Lieutenant Barker of the King's Own. Now, you can recognize uh, the different events, as he tells them, from their side, from the English side. All right. Uh, This is, again... Let's see, this is all right. Now we have uh, a Minuteman, a Minuteman's account of Lexington. Now, as we know, there were no Minutemen. In uh, in the Lexing- Lexington company, Lexington had the uh, uh, the single company rather than the uh, than the split up units that other towns had. But other towns had Minutemen, and they had some of the folks had been sent when they heard of the stuff that was going on. They had made their way to Lexington. <clears throat> And this is an account from uh, Sylvanus Wood of Woburn. I, Sylvanus Wood of Woburn, in the county of Middlesex and Commonwealth of Massachusetts, aged 74 years, do testify and say that on the morning of 19th of April, 1775, I was an inhabitant of Woburn, living with Deacon Obadiah Kendall, that about an hour before the break of day on said morning, I heard the Lexington bell ring, and fearing there was difficulty there, I immediately rose, took my gun, and with Robert Douglas went in haste to Lexington, which was about three miles distance. When I arrived there, I inquired of Captain Parker, the commander of the Lexington Company, what was the news. Parker told me he did not know what to believe, for a man had come up about half an hour before and informed him that the British troops were not on the road. But while we were talking, a messenger came up and called and told the captain that the British troops were indeed on the road and were within a half mile. Parker immediately turned to his drummer, William Diamond, and ordered him to beat to arms, which was done. Captain Parker then asked me if I would parade with his company. I told him I would. Parker then asked me if the young man with me would parade. I spoke to Douglas, and he said that he would. By this time, many of the company had gathered around the captain at the hearing of the drum where we stood, which was about halfway between the meeting house and Buckman's Tavern. Parker says to his men, Every man of you who is equipped, follow me. And those of you who are not equipped, go into the meeting house and furnish yourselves from the magazine and immediately join the company. Parker led those of us who were equipped to the north end of the Lexington Common 
near the Bedford Road and formed us in single line. I was stationed about in the center of the company. While we were standing, I left my place and went from one end of the company to the other and counted every man who paraded, and the whole number was 38 and no more. Just as I had finished and got back to my place, I perceived the British troops had arrived on the spot between the meeting house and Buckman's, near where Captain Parker stood, where he first led off his men. The British troops immediately wheeled so as to cut off those who had gone into the meeting house. The British troops approached us rapidly in platoons, which a general officer on horseback at their head. The officer came up to within about two rods of the center of the company where I stood, the first platoon being about three rods distance. There they halted. The officer then swung his sword and said, Lay down your arms, you damned rebel, or you're all dead men. Fire! Some guns were fired by the British at us from the first platoon, but no person was killed or hurt, being probably charged only with powder. Just at this time, Captain Parker ordered every man to take care of himself. The company immediately dispersed, and while the company was dispersing and leaping over the wall, the second platoon of the British fired and killed some of our men. There was not a gun fired by any of Captain Parker's company within my knowledge. I was so situated that I must have known it had anything of the kind taken place before a total dispersion of our company. I have been intimately acquainted with the inhabitants of Lexington, and particularly with those of Captain Parker's company. With one exception, I have never heard any of them say or pretend to say there was any firing at the British from Parker's company or any individual in it until within a year or two. One member of the company told me, many years since, that after Parker's company had dispersed and he was at some distance, he gave them the, quote, guts of his gun. Signed, Sylvanus Wood. <clears throat> All right, now this uh, was from testimony given after he was uh, 74 years old. This was uh, testimony giving in at uh, Middlesex on June 17, 1826 to Nathan Brooks, Justice of the Peace. <clears throat> now you can see that uh, there, there were many accounts of what happened and how it happened. By his account, he said that he heard a, uh, a British uh, officer on horseback say, lay down your arms, you damned rebel, or you'll all be dead men. Fire. He also said that nobody shot back, and uh, he swears that, that nobody shot back and that he would be able to tell if they had. Now, <clears throat> we have testimony from some of the men that were there that said they they did see uh, the militia, the colonists, firing back. And we know that uh, 
uh, one of the guys, one of the militiamen, stood their ground and supposedly got off two shots before he himself was shot on, I believe, either the second or third firing. And uh, we also know that uh, somebody shot back, whether it was in the ranks of the militia or from somewhere else, because they had the uh, British regulars had one man wounded. <clears throat> so, as I said, as I was telling you at the beginning, this is uh, this is uh, it's not uh, it, this is the the perspective of one person. This is what one person saw and one person's testimony. Now, these historians, and of course, uh, especially the book uh, Paul Revere's Ride with David Hackett Fisher, uh, he has gone through uh, stacks and stacks of paperwork and uh, and testimonies so that he could find uh, different testimony from different folks and piece it all together. But this is one man's vision. This is what he saw. And uh, as you all know, as everybody knows, depending on where you're you're standing uh, when something happens, you're going to describe it as what you see. You know, reality uh, reality is a uh, is uh, is always traveling uh, outwards from the perspective of the beholder, right? You as a singularity, you you determine what your reality is by what you see. <clears throat> but often that's not the case, that you're seeing the whole event. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> but I think that it's very interesting uh, to read the, uh, to read from the people's own mouths what they saw that day. All right, now we're going to move forward to the uh, Bridge of Concord. And we have uh, the Reverend William Emerson, who was, uh, he was actually the grandfather of uh, of the uh, poet Emerson. And uh, he was with the uh, the colonist at the Concord Bridge. And this is a... Uh, uh, a diary entry where the, he wrote down uh, let's see it's in his diary <clears throat> from his diary uh, 19 April 1775 this morning between 1 and 2 o'clock we were alarmed by the ringing of the bell and upon examination found that the troops the number of 800 had stole their march from Boston in boats and barges from the bottom of the common over to a point in Cambridge near the Inman's farm and were at Lexington Meeting House half an hour before sunrise where they had fired upon a body of our men as we afterward heard and had killed several. This intelligence was brought us at first by Dr. Samuel Prescott who narrowly escaped the guard that were sent before on horses purposely to prevent all posts and messengers from giving us timely information. He, by the help of a very fleet horse, crossing several walls and fences, arrived at Concord at the time above mentioned when several posts were immediately dispatched. 
that returning confirmed the account of the regulars' arrival at Lexington and that they were on their way to Concord. Upon this, a number of our Minutemen belonging to this town and Acton and Lincoln, with several others that were in readiness, marched out to meet them while the alarm company were preparing to receive them in the town. Captain Minot, who commanded them, thought it proper to take possession of the hill above the meeting house as the most advantageous situation. No sooner had our men gained it than we were met by the companies that were sent out to meet the troops, who informed us that they were just upon us and that we must retreat as their number was more than trouble ours. We then retreated from the hill near the Liberty Pole and took a new post back of the town upon an eminence where we formed into two battalions and waited the arrival of the enemy. Scarcely had we formed before we saw the British troops at the distance of a quarter mile glittering in arms, advancing toward us with the greatest celerity. Some were for making a, a stand, notwithstanding the superiority of their numbers, but others, more prudent, thought best to retreat till our strength should be equal to the enemy's by recruits from neighboring towns that were continually coming to our assistance. Accordingly, we retreated over the bridge when the troops came into the town, set fire to several carriages for the artillery, destroyed 60 barrels of flour, rifled several houses, took possession of the townhouse, destroyed 500 pounds of balls, set a guard of 100 men at the North Bridge, sent up a party to the house of Colonel Barrett, where they were in expectation of finding a quantity of warlike stores. But these were happily secured, just before their arrival by transportation into the woods and other by-places. In the meantime, the guards set by the enemy to secure the pass at the North Bridge were alarmed by the approach of our people, who had retreated, as mentioned before, and were now advancing with special orders not to fire upon the troops unless fired upon. These orders were so punctually observed that we received the fire of the enemy in three several and separate discharges of their pieces before it was returned by our commanding officer. The firing then soon became general for several minutes, in which skirmish two were killed on each side and several of the, wound, the enemy wounded. It may here be observed, by the way, that we were the more cautious to prevent beginning a rupture with the king's troops, as we were then uncertain what had happened at Lexington, and, and knew not that they had begun the quarrel there by first firing upon our people and killing eight men upon the spot. The three companies of troops soon quitted their post at the bridge, and were retreated in the greatest disorder and confusion to the main body who were soon upon the march to meet them. <clears throat> For half an hour, the enemy, by their marches and countermarches, discovered great 
fickleness and inconsistency of mind, sometimes advancing, sometimes returning to their former post, till at length they quitted the town and retreated by the way they came. In the meantime, a party of our men, around 150, took the back way through the great fields into the east quarter and placed themselves to advantage, lying in ambush behind the walls, fences, and buildings, ready to fire upon the enemy on their retreat. <clears throat> All right, so now we hear from from William Emerson. And uh, I want you to... Uh, well, I want you to take note of one of the things that he said, which was, and uh, and this is mentioned in Paul Revere's <clears throat> ride, the David Hackett Fisher book. It's mentioned it, but not uh, uh, it's not written out so plainly as here. And that is uh, that as the militia, as the as the folks were marching uh, to face the regulars at the North Bridge, uh, that they were actually fired on several times. Not just, it wasn't just a uh, uh, one discharge of fire and then they began firing back. They were actually fired on by three different relays, right? Now, we know that... uh, 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 Isaac Davis, uh, and uh, and I believe there was another one, either a Muzzy or uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, we know that these two men uh, were killed in the first fire. All right, but there were three separate fires, three different fires before the order was given to return fire, and the militia uh, they kept in, and it's described in several other places that the militia, as they were marching forward, and this is the Minuteman included, but there were also uh, uh, the other companies of militia that were with them, that they maintained their space in their ranks as they were being fired on, as people were being hit and wounded and knocked down and stuff, that they they maintained their ranks. They didn't disperse. They didn't uh, drop to the ground or take off running. They maintained their ranks. And then they were given the order to fire, and they returned fire. Uh, and that was their first. Okay. <clears throat> All right, while I'm... Uh, While I am looking for this page here, we're going to let uh, we're going to have uh, true tenacity is going to come on, and uh, they're going to do a a story about Hannah Winthrop. So, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Scout. And uh, you're going to give us a story on Hannah Winthrop. Actually, this is an excerpt from a letter written by Hannah Winthrop. Uh, okay, it was great. Written... Well, that's, per- that's perfect. You're keeping it right in context with this uh, because uh, I wanted to, I wanted the folks to hear tonight uh, from the actual from the mouths of the people that were there, not not 
not from the folks who have gone back and and said, well, here's what they were saying or here's what they were thinking. Uh, I wanted people to hear what they were actually saying. So, so that's great. You're, you're hitting it right on the nose. So, go ahead and, and give us a uh, uh, an introduction to what you're going to to tell us, and then give us the uh, the story. All right, I'll do that. This is actually an excerpt from a letter. It was uh, written by Hannah Winthrop to her good uh, good friend Mercy Warren, who was the wife of Colonel James Warren. This actually can be read in a book called The Women of the American Revolution. It was written in 1848 by Elizabeth Fry's Ellett. Uh, Miss Ellett, she dedicated this book actually to her mother, Sarah Maxwell uh, Loomis, and she was a daughter of a revolutionary officer. So again, this is an excerpt from Hannah Winthrop's letter to Mercy Warren. And this is what she says. Nor can I ever forget, nor will old time ever erase the horrors of that midnight cry preceding the bloody massacre at Lexington when we were roused from the benign slumbers of the season by beat of drum and ringing of bells with the dire alarm that a thousand of the troops of George III had gone forth to murder the peaceful inhabitants of the surrounding villages. A few hours with the dawning day convinced us the bloody purpose was executing, the platoon firing, assuring us the rising sun must witness the bloody carnage. Not knowing what the even would be at Cambridge, at the return of these bloody ruffians and seeing another brigade dispatched to the assistance of the former, looking with the ferocity of barbarians, it seemed necessary to retire to some place of safety till the calamity was past. After dinner we set out, not knowing whither we went. We were directed to a place called Fresh Pond, about a mile from town. But what a distressed house did we find it, filled with women whose husbands had gone forth to meet the assailants, 70 or 80 of these with numberless infant children, weeping and agonizing for the fate of their husbands. In addition to this scene of distress, we were for some time in sight of the battle, the glittering instrument of death proclaiming by an incessant fire that much blood must be shed, that many widowed and orphaned ones must be left at monuments of British barbarity. Another uncomfortable night we passed, some nodding off in their chairs, some resting their weary limbs on the floor. The welcome harbingers of day gave notice of its dawning light. It brings no news. It is unsafe to return to Cambridge as the enemy were advancing up the river and fixing on the town to stay in. Thus, the precipitacy we were driven to the town of Anderson, following some of our acquaintance, five of us to be conveyed with one poor tired horse in chase. Thus we began our pilgrimage, alternately walking and riding, the roads filled with frightened women and children, some in carts with their tattered furniture, others on foot fleeing into the woods. But what added greatly to the horrors of the scene was our passing through the bloody field of Manatong, which was strewed with the mangled bodies. We met one affectionate father with a cart looking for his murdered son and picking up his neighbors who had fallen in battle in order for their burial. That's the extent of the uh, 
the excerpt of the letter, one of the things that we like to do um, on a Sunday when we present history is read this letter because for us it reminds us of the women and the children and some of the um, choices that they had to make along with their husbands. And this is an experience that Hannah Winthrop um, actually had to go through, and she wrote about it to her friend. Well, thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I want to remind folks that <clears throat> that that a lot of times, because men write the history, a lot of times that uh, that they leave out uh, a lot of the the history uh, that was uh, that was laid in place by women. They leave they they leave out a lot of the the written word and uh, a lot of the stuff that goes on. But there was a great deal. This wasn't just a uh, a revolution. Uh, fought by men. It was fought by men, by women, by the children. Uh, it was fought by families, and and very few families were left untouched by this. Well, that's exactly right. One one of the things that we like to emphasize is what you're saying that it's not just it was not just a man's war, but it was a family's war, and it wasn't a knee jerk reaction that these men were making. But it was family decisions. These families had dinners around the table, and the dinner talk was about freedom and about liberty. The children were raised in in that atmosphere of understanding the difficult choices that their parents were making. And therein lies the reason why we we see these young drummer boys and, and fifers that are standing along with their dads and the moms and sisters preparing uh, their meals for them to be taking out to the field when when um, they heard the muster, so it was very much not just a a, a male um, fight, but it was family. Families made those choices together, and they were willing right. to support one another in in making that choice. And well, along that it, same line, stay stay on the line with me, and uh, I'm going to read you another uh, letter, and this is from uh, from a lady in Philadelphia, and. It's to a Captain S, and that's all she puts because I guess she doesn't want to uh, to write out his name. He's a British officer in Boston. Now, the 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 American the British regulars, the soldiers, as we remind folks that the in the colonies were British. They were yes. British citizens. They they didn't uh they didn't this whole thing didn't start because they wanted to separate from uh from England. They simply wanted their rights as citizens. So they have a very intertwined relationship. And I'm gonna read you this letter real quick and this is from uh from a lady in Philadelphia and it's to her friend who is a British officer in Boston. Sir, we've received a letter from you wherein you let Mr. S. know that you had written after the Battle of Lexington, particularly to me, knowing my martial spirit, that I would delight to read the exploits of heroes. Surely, my friend, you must mean the New England heroes, as they alone performed exploits worthy of fame, while the regulars, vastly superior in numbers, 
were obliged to retreat with a rapidity unequaled except by the French at the Battle of Minden. Indeed, General Gage gives them their due praise in his letter home where he says, Lord Percy was remarkable for his activity. You will not, I hope, take offense at any expression that, in the warmth of my heart, should escape me when I assure you that we consider you as a public enemy. We regard you as a private friend. And while we detest the cause you are fighting for, we wish well to your own personal interest and safety. Thus far, by way of apology, as to the martial spirit you suppose me to possess, you are greatly mistaken. I tremble at the thoughts of war, but of all wars, a civil one. Our all is at stake. We are called upon by every tie that is dear and sacred to exert the spirit that heaven has given us in this righteous struggle for liberty. I will tell you what I have done. My only brother I have sent to the camp with my prayers and blessings. I hope he will not disgrace me. I am confident he will behave with honor and emulate the great example he has before him. And had I twenty sons and brothers, they should go. I have retrenched every superfluous expense in my table and family. Tea I have not drank since last Christmas, nor bought a new cap or gown since your defeat at Lexington. And what I never did before, have learnt to knit. I am now making stockings of American wool for my servants. In this way do I throw in my might to the public good. I know this, that as free I can die but once, but as a slave I shall not be worthy of life. I have the pleasure to assure you that these are the sentiments of all my sister Americans. They have sacrificed both assemblies, parties of pleasure, tea drinking, and finery to that great spirit of patriotism that actuates all ranks and degrees of people throughout this extensive continent. If these are the sentiments of females, what must glow in the breasts of our husbands, brothers, and sons? They are, as with one heart, determined to die or be free. It is not a quibble in politics, a science which few understand, which we are contending for. It is this plain truth which the most ignorant peasant knows and is clear to the weakest capacity that no man has a right to take their money without consent. The supposition is ridiculous and absurd, as none but highwaymen and robbers attempt it. Can you, my friend, reconcile it with your own good sense that a body of men in Great Britain who have little intercourse with America, and of course not knowing of us, nor are supposed to see or feel the misery they inflict upon us, shall invest themselves with a power to command our lives and properties at all times and in all cases whatsoever? You say you are no politician. Oh, sir, it requires no Machiavellian head to develop this and discover this tyranny and oppression. It is written with a sunbeam. Everyone will see and know it because it will make them feel, and we shall be unworthy of the blessings of heaven if we ever submit to it. All ranks of men amongst us are in arms. Nothing is heard now in our streets but the trumpet and drum. And the universal cry is, Americans to arms. All your friends are officers. There are Captain S.D., Lieutenant B., and Captain J.S., we have five regiments in the city and country of Philadelphia, complete in arms and uniforms, and very expert at the military maneuvers. We have companies of light horse, light infantry, grenadiers, riflemen, and Indians, 
several companies of artillery and some excellent brass cannon and field pieces. Add to this that every county in Pennsylvania and the Delaware government can send 2,000 men to the field. Heaven seems to smile on us, for in the memory of man never were known such quantities of flax and sheep without number. We are making powder fast and do not want for ammunition. In short, we want for nothing but ships of war to defend us. Again. If it's softball, then it's ready. He's cut off again. No. Is Scout not on? I mean, I don't hear Scout talking at all, and I don't hear my voice talking at all either. I think there was some kind of disconnection. Okay, there we go. So, uh, I'm not sure where Scout went. I'm going to... Uh, oh, there I'm you are, to... Scout. Okay, you back? I'm here. You went somewhere. I don't know where you went. I went somewhere? Yeah, all of a sudden I didn't hear hear you say anything. I mean, uh, even on the... Um, on the radio show, there's, they, they didn't uh, get a chance to hear the rest of your letter. Hmm. Well, that's the that's the wonderfulness of uh, of uh, of blog Technology. talk. Now, you know what I saw? I saw that uh, the call screener had uh, maybe he had me. Uh, we were he's given me some. Some notes now and then, so that may have uh, that may have cut us off. But but go ahead. Well, I was just I didn't know uh, how we were going to take up some airspace, and I I found, and I think some other people on the Appleseed forum found it as well. And I don't know if this is appropriate to be reading, um, because it's not actually a dissertation or anything from uh, someone during the era. But this is actually a thank you letter to Captain John Parker that was uh, written just uh, last month on April 18th. Um, some well, of the Apple anything, leaders... Anything addressed to Captain Parker is uh, appropriate in my All mind. right. Well, and, uh, I certainly can read this thank you letter. It was um, the uh, blogger said that we certainly could use it as part of our history as long as we um, give him the rights to it and um, identify him as, as the author of it. So it was on the Arctic Patriot uh, is the name of the blogger, 
And okay. he wrote a and he wrote a thank you letter to Captain John Parker in celebration of Patriots Day that we just got done celebrating um April eighteenth. And so if you would like me to read it, I can do that. Please go ahead. All right, it says Captain Parker, I know you're long since in the grave. Nevertheless, I want to thank you for that crazy, defiant, insane act of pointless resistance you committed all those years ago. I want to thank you for standing in defiance of the most powerful military force known to man, alone with so few of your townsmen. That act alone, that resistance, likely was enough in itself to see you arrested, your life destroyed. You had to know you didn't stand a chance against British bayonets and musketry. And you couldn't have possibly known what would soon transpire because of the pure steel you displayed that day. You stood sick with the illness that you would bring you to, that would bring you to death, staring down the British Empire, and you and your men did not falter. How fast and hard your heart must have beat, how sweaty your palms, how dry your mouth as you showed a defiant and brave front to the enemy and to your men. And could you have known? You and your men stood, knowing the steel that was in front of you was poisoned to crush you. Could you have known what would happen after you stand, after your stand? Would you be crushed and abandoned by your countrymen after your stand? Would it be in vain? Would your former friends and militiamen scurry to be distanced from your memory? Would your wives hate you for standing and dying for this one thing, this concept, this freedom? Could you have known? You couldn't have. Some things just have to be done, even if you just don't know. Did you know that day how many would come to your aid? Did you know that you would send the British, your own countrymen, into a rout, bloodied and dying? Did you ever dream in the years before that it would come to this? Did you hold out hope until that last second that things would change? What made you stand? What made you defy law and order, king and country? What made you so enraged and galvanized that finally you said, no more, and stood? What made you finally stand and take aim at the uniform you once wore? You were no stranger to the hell of war, yet you left your farm and job behind to lay your life down as a sacrifice. What made you leave your wife and home, sick and dying, to stand for this thing no one could touch, this, this idea? What did your wife Lydia think? She knew, didn't she, even before you picked up your gun. She knew what you would do. It was part of who you were. Perhaps she knew before you did. You couldn't not do what you did. Then they came. After the alerts and alarms of the night before, there they were, suddenly already within the town. There they were, so close. That's how it always is, though, isn't it? All the ideas, the bantering, the theorizing, the decisions... They all came to a halt in that second, and it was too late to think, to decide, to debate. There they were. As you watched the scene devolved and grew tense, you knew what was coming. It was inevitable. Your words calmed and steeled the men, letting them stand. You knew what was coming. They were boys and men from all walks of life. You'd been a man of war. Was it a game to them up until the red columns appeared? You knew, though, didn't you? But just for a second, toward the end, did you think and hold out hope that it would not explode? Did you hope and pray the inevitable would not come? Then it came. You saw the rising sun glistening off the dew in the grass. 
You heard the morning birds singing as if nothing was amiss. You might have noticed the clouds above or the familiar sights and smells of the town in that moment. That moment that is before, when all your senses explode and bring the earth into infinite focus, an awareness that has to be experienced to be known, the moment before violence, in that moment, you knew. Then it came. Did you hear the shot heard around the world? Was it loud and clear, or were your senses overwhelmed in that chaotic second when the world erupted into flame and fire and the world began to turn upside down? All the fear and trepidation of the day, all the anxiety, released finally in a cataclysmic blast that changed everything. You watched as your men were shot down, unable to stop at all and help at all. You watched as your cousin was impaled on the bayonet of a countryman, slain with cold British steel. After it all, when the quiet came, interrupted only by the moans of the dying, when the victorious huzzas to the king faded and the marching columns left, you could have walked away. You did not. You could have walked away once again to rest in the arms of your wife, sick with the disease that would be your end. You did not. You could have gone back to your Lydia and lived the remainder of it well. Why not, Captain Parker? Why not, John? You gathered those who were left, and you did not run from the army that crushed you. No, instead you pursued it and claimed your Parker's revenge. You came. You stood. You led. You returned. You won. You knew that, didn't you? Or did you? You died before the war was over from the affliction that plagued you that day, all those years ago. But that day, and forever, you won. I want to thank you, John, for what you did, for standing against your countrymen, for leading your men as you did, for taking the flame and fire and musketry. I want to thank you as well for coming back, for coming back, for coming back and fighting, yes, for slaying your countrymen, although from the moment the shots were fired, they were forever not your countrymen. That morning you stood. You fought for something you could not touch, something you could not see, something you would never see. This idea, this thing, this liberty. You would never know it, yet you fought. That morning you stood. I pray that like you, we may stand whether in peace or in strife, because if we stand like you, no matter what, we've won like you. Thank you, John Parker. And there you have a wonderful, to me, a wonderful thank you letter that um, sometimes we forget that we need to thank thank our founding fathers for what they indeed did for us. Right, and that embodies the the whole premise of... Uh... RWVA, the Revolutionary War Veterans Association, which is to honor uh, those men and women who who went before us, you know, who who did stand together in ranks, so that uh, so that we wouldn't have to. And, and the way that we honor them is to remember them. And that person clearly remembers them and is clearly honoring them because and I've told you guys many times before the the debt that we owe to those men and women is a is a huge one. And yet uh there's no there's no good way of making it even except 
by honoring them. And how do we honor folks? We remind we we remember them and we remember what their reasons were for doing it. And we try and keep those reasons uh close to our heart and that is ensuring that the freedoms and liberties that they fought so hard uh to gain for us that those liberties and freedoms are safeguarded and that's what uh that's that's our purpose that's what we're supposed to be doing oh that's exactly right and and um i do need to repeat the names so that we don't forget and to give um uh let the person know, let people know who the blogger was. It was the Arctic Patriot, and he wrote on his blog on April 18th this thank you letter. Um, Scott, can I leave you with two more two more quotes, and then and then I'll I'll let you uh, I'll let you finish up, and and then I'm going to go have cake. Uh, okay. Well, what um, kind of cake are you going to have? Well, uh, Leslie, Western Rose is baking a cake, and we're having the a family tradition um, cake this evening. So. Uh, we're, I'm pretty excited about it. We'll uh, finish excellent. up dinner. We'll finish up dinner and then have cake. Any reason? Any reason to have cake is a good reason. That's what I say. Um, <laughs> a, a couple of uh, one thing that this this is just like just two sentences from a, a British soldier. It says, um, one battle weary British soldier in a letter to his family in England wrote, even in their dresses the females seem to bid us defiance. And also an officer stated that he believed. If he had destroyed all the men in North America, we should have enough to do to conquer the women. And then the last one, this is a, a quote that uh, the First Lady Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, John. She says, Public spirit lives lives in the bosoms of the fair daughters of America who unite their efforts to reward the patriotic, stimulate the brave, to alleviate the burden of war, and to show that they are not dismayed by defeats of misfortunes. And I'll leave you with that again, reminding people that um, this is a family. Uh, it was a family's fighting for freedom, making those hard choices as family members, not just individual people, but family members remembering their posterity, um, that they were doing this for their posterity. So uh, thanks, Scout, for letting me be on, and, and uh, God bless your uh, rest of your evening. Well, thank you, and God bless you and yours also. Have some good cake. All right. Thanks, Scout. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Family's <clears throat> And that's the, uh, that is one of the points that uh, I wanted to make with the letters tonight, is that this isn't a, uh, this wasn't a, uh, a war that was fought just by two groups of guys somewhere, uh, somewhere far away. This was a war fought uh, by families, and uh, in many cases it was fought uh, between neighbors, between folks who knew each other, and in, and, in, uh, and in a lot of cases between relatives, between blood relatives that uh, found themselves on one side of the line or the other. All right, I'm going to finish up real quick with uh, <clears throat> a letter from Paul Revere, and this is to Dr. Jeremy Belknap, and... Uh, he wrote this in 1798, and it's his recollection of the events of his ride. Now, we know that uh, Longfellow uh, made Revere famous later on with his poem, uh, even though the, the poem is filled with inconsistencies. But uh, this is Paul Revere's own words, his own letter, 
to uh, Dr. Belknap. In the fall of 1774 and winter of 1775, I was one of upwards of 30, chiefly mechanics, who formed ourselves into a committee for the purpose of watching the movements of the British soldiers and gaining every intelligence of the movements of the Tories. We held our meetings at the Green Dragon Tavern. We were so careful that our meetings should be kept secret that every time we met, every person swore upon the Bible that they would not discover any of our transactions but to Messrs. Hancock and Adams or Doctors Warren's Church and one or two more. In the winter, towards the spring, we frequently took turns, two and two, to watch the soldiers by patrolling the streets at night. The Saturday night preceding the 19th of April, about 12 o'clock at night, the boats belonging to the transports were all launched and carried under the sterns of the men of war. They had previously hauled up and repaired. We likewise found that the grenadiers and light infantry were all taken off duty. From these movements, we expected something serious was to be transacted. On Tuesday evening, the 18th, it was observed that a number of soldiers were marching towards the bottom of the common. About 10 o'clock, Dr. Warren sent in great haste for me and begged that I would immediately set off for Lexington, where Messrs. Hancock and Adams were, and acquaint them of the movement and that it was thought they were the objects. When I got to Dr. Warren's house, I found that he had sent an express by land to Lexington, a Mr. William Dawes. The Sunday before, by desire of Dr. Warren, I had been to Lexington, to Messrs. Hancock and Adams, who were at the Reverend Mr. Clark's. I returned at night to Charleston. There I agreed with the Colonel Conant that some other gentleman, that if the British weren't out by water, we would show two lanterns in the North Church steeple, and if by land, one as a signal, for we were apprehensive it would be difficult to cross the Charles River or get over Boston Neck. I left Dr. Warren, called upon a friend, and desired him to make the signals. I then went home, took my boots and shirts out, went to the north part of the town where I had kept a boat. Two friends rowed me across the Charles River, a little to the eastward where the Somerset Man of War lay. It was then young flood. The ship was winding and the moon was rising. They landed me on the Charleston side. When I got to town, I met Colonel Conant and several others. They said they had seen our signals. I told them what was acting, and we went to get me a horse. I got a horse of Deacon Larkin. While the horse was preparing, Richard Devins, Esquire, who was one of the Committee of Safety, came to me and told me that he came down the road from Lexington after sundown that evening, and they had met ten British officers, all well-mounted and armed, going up the road. I set off upon a very good horse. It was in about 11 o'clock and very pleasant. After I had passed Charleston Neck, I saw two men on horseback under a tree. When I got near them, I discovered they were British officers. One tried to get ahead of me, the other to take me. I turned my horse very quick and galloped toward Charleston Neck, then pushed for the Medford Road. The one who chased me, endeavoring to cut me off, got into a clay pond near where Mr. Russell's tavern is now built. I got clean of him and went through Medford, over the bridge and up to Monotomy. In Medford, I waked the captain of the Minutemen. After that, I alarmed almost every house till I got to Lexington. I found Messrs. Hancock and Adams at Reverend Clark's. I told them of my errand and inquired for Mr. Dawes. They said that he had not been there. I related the story of the two officers and supposed that he must have been stopped, as he ought to have been there before me. After I had been there about half an hour, Mr. Dawes came. We refreshed ourselves and set off for Concord. We were overtaken by a young Dr. Prescott, whom we found to be a high son of liberty. 
I told them of the ten officers that Mr. Devins met and that it was probable we might be stopped before we got to Concord. For I supposed that after night they divided themselves and that two of them had fixed themselves in such passages as were most likely to stop any intelligence going to Concord. I likewise mentioned that we had better alarm all the inhabitants till we got to Concord. The young doctor much approved of it and said he would stop with either of us, for the people between that and Concord knew him well and would give the more credit to what we said. We had got nearly halfway, Mr. Dawes, and the doctor stopped to alarm the people of the house. I was about 100 rods ahead when I saw two men in nearly the same situation as those officers who were near Charleston. I called for the doctor and Mr. Dawes to come up. In an instant, I was surrounded by four. They had placed themselves in a straight road that inclined each way. They had taken down a pair of bars on the north side of the road, and two of them were under a tree in the pasture. The doctor, being foremost, he came up, and we tried to get past him, but they, being armed with pistols and swords, they forced us into the pasture. The doctor jumped his horse over a lone stone wall and got to Concord. I observed a wood at a small distance and made for it. When I got there, out started six officers on horseback and ordered me to dismount. One of them appeared to have the command examined me where I came from, what my name was. I told him. He asked me if I was an express, and I answered yes. He demanded what time I left Boston. I told him and added that their troops had catched me aground in passing the river and that there would be 500 Americans there in a short time, for I had alarmed the country all the way up. He then ordered them to take advance and lead me in the front as we left. We got to the road. They turned toward Lexington. We'd gone about one mile, and the major rode up to the officer that was leading me, told him to give me to the sergeant. As soon as he took me, the major ordered him, if I attempted to run or anybody insulted them, to blow my brains out. We rode till we got near Lexington Meeting House when the militia fired a volley of guns, which appeared to alarm them very much. The major inquired of me how far it was to Cambridge and if there was any other road. After some consultation, the major rode up to the sergeant and asked if his horse was tired. He answered him that he was. He was a sergeant of grenadiers, and he had a small horse. Then, he said, take that man's horse. I dismounted, and the sergeant mounted my horse, when they all rode towards Lexington Meeting House. I went across the burying ground and some pastures and came to Reverend Mr. Clark's house, where I found Messrs. Hancock and Adams. I told them of my treatment. They concluded to go from that house to Woolburn. When we got to the house where they intended to stop, Mr. Lowell and myself returned to Mr. Clark's to find out what was going on. When we got there, an elderly man came in. He said he'd just come from the tavern, that a man had come from Boston. who said that there were no British troops coming. We afterwards met another who said they were close by. Mr. Lowell asked me to go to the tavern with him to get a trunk of papers belonging to Mr. Hancock. We went up a chamber, and while we were getting the trunk, we saw the British very near upon a full march. We hurried toward Mr. Clark's house. In our way, we passed through the militia. There were about 50. When we had gone about 100 yards from the meeting house, the British troops appeared on both sides of the meeting house. In their front was an officer on horseback. They made a short halt when I saw and heard a gun fired, which appeared to be a pistol. Then I could distinguish two guns and then a continual roar of musketry when we made off with the trunk. That's from uh, Paul Revere's letter to Jeremy Belknap. I hope we've enjoyed the letters from the folks tonight. I hope that uh, that this will inspire you to read. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about these letters, it's from the Spirit of 76. All right, put up by Castle Books. Thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you this next Thursday.
uh, 7 p.m. Central. God bless all, and we'll see you then. Good night. Thanks to everybody that called in. Thanks to the call screener, and uh, and we will see you this next Thursday. Good night.